Let me be the latest to wish everyone out there who is a dad happy, happy Father's Day. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do. You are the anchors to our homes, and you are the, the, real, the real foundational building blocks of our community. Now, I'm going to intentionally speak about fathers in glowing and responsible ways. I'm not going to talk about moms today. Simply because I didn't doesn't mean that I don't believe you're great. You had your time four weeks ago. <laughs> Turn with me over to the book of Malachi. Book of Malachi. We're going to continue with our series on faith, but today we're going to talk about the faith that is needed in order to restore things. And we're going to incorporate the, the concept of fatherhood in that. So the title of the message is Father's Day, Faith for Restoration. Father's Day, Faith for Restoration. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Malachi is in the Old Testament. It's the last book in the Old Testament. He says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Verse 6, and he will restore the hearts of fathers to children and the hearts of children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Lord, help us. We study your word today, please. Amen. Three things about this passage upon which I wish to concentrate. One, prophetic need. Two, prophetic impact. And three, the parental child slash child relief. Parental slash child relief. Context of this verse is that Malachi is a prophet who is talking to the leadership, spiritual leadership of his nation, primarily to the priesthood. By extension, the rest of the people of Judah, Israel had already been taken captive, and Judah had been taken captive, but then they had returned by way of an exilic exodus, if you will, a second exodus from Babylon to Jerusalem. And Malachi is one of the prophets. In the attempt to try to restore the, the house, meaning the house of God, and all of its services, there were some missteps, both in the construction of the building and in the intentional deployment of people to make everything work well. Lots of missteps. And Malachi deals with those missteps, not so much in the physical construction, but in how the priests did what they did. And he's very, very intentional about his correction and very focused. He talks about how the priests really aren't providing for their wives. They're divorcing them left and right. Horrible. Now, if you know the pastors are doing this, what is happening with the rest of the folk? This is horrible. As priests, they were supposed to know how they offered things to God, the best way to do it. And they weren't complying. They were giving God the lame, sheep that were blind, oxen that were diseased. Those are the ones they were offering rather than the best. They weren't tithing. He says, why don't you do this? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. 10% of everything you earn is supposed to go to God. Bring this into the store so that there may be food in my house, provision, spiritual provision and natural for my household. Right now my house is struggling because it can't keep the lights on. 
bring the tithe into the storehouse. See, and then God gives a promise here. See if I will not open up the windows of heaven in Matthew, in Malachi chapter 3, and pour out upon you a blessing you can't contain. Test me now in this, God says. Malachi's dealing with the priesthood. At the very end of his letter, <clears throat> he begins to talk about what's going to happen in the future. That not many days from now, I didn't say how many, but he, he's, it, the sense is that it's on the way. That God is sending Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, Elijah was some kind of prophet. Elijah happened to have lived some 350 years earlier. Maybe a little about 400, a little bit like 400. And he was extraordinary. First one in the Old Testament to raise somebody from the dead. We don't know exactly from where he came. It doesn't say he was a part of a certain tribe or clan. It does say that his father was Tish. But he just shows up one day in the northern kingdom. At that time, there were two kingdoms in Israel. There was a northern kingdom with a northern king and an entire system that was different than the one in the south from which everybody came. Ten tribes to the north, two in the south, Levi and then Judah. Some cross-pollinization with Benjamin, but for the most part, ten tribes separated. And these two kingdoms fought with one another. Rarely did they have the occasion or take advantage of the idea that they should really do something together. The northern kingdom was all bad. They didn't have a good king among them. They only had one possibly good king, but he was only good because he didn't, he didn't do real bad. That was the standard. His name was Jehu. But the only reason he wasn't de declared horrible is that he didn't do real bad. You can't find anything that he did that was really commendable and virtuous. Judah, on the other hand, eh, sometimes they weren't as good as the northern kingdom either, but at least they had some degree of virtue from time to time. Elijah prophesied in the northern kingdom, and he comes to a guy named Ahab, who happens to be the grandson of a guy, I think, named Jeroboam, who was the first king. Great, in some place, three or four generations down. And Ahab is said to have been the worst out of all the kings of Israel. Every, and every one of them was bad, but he was the worst. And God is about to, to help Israel get right. Elijah shows up in Ahab's court, says, um, yeah, it's not going to rain except when I tell it. Now he has no credibility because he's never prophesied before that we know of. And he just shows up in the king's court and tells the king it's not going to rain except when he says so. Everybody said, who's that guy? I don't know. Mm. Two months pass, no rain. Who's that guy? Four months pass, no rain. What was this? What was this? Where? Anybody? Nine months pass. Hey, we need to find that guy. We need to find that guy. And, f and what is it? Where is he? What does he do? 18 months. CIA, FBI. Navy SEALs, Rangers, get out and find that guy. And they, they, it is an all-out search. And they find him. Three and a half years later. Wow. Elijah was powerful. He was a reformer of a country. At least the attempt to do so. And God says, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, be real certain about this. That there is nothing that is scripturally confirming of reincarnation. Nothing. 
But what we see here is God saying, I'm going to send the same spirit that was on Elijah in this generation coming. And it's going to be before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, we're not quite sure what great and terrible day means. But we do know that it's probably not good. Now, the superlative great, we like to use it when we talk about something being wonderful. But that's really not how the Bible uses the term great. It's more, more like awesome, but not the kind of awesome where somebody goes, wow. No, the, the kind of awesome that inspires awe, wonder, amazement. The kind of awesome that, that the hyenas displayed when they heard the word Mufasa. <laughs> Does anybody remember? Mufasa, Mufasa, that, just a sense of heaviness. And then the word terrible means terrible. It means frightful, horrifying, dreadful. So there's nothing about this great and terrible day, this good. Now we do know this, that Jesus defined who Elijah was, meaning that this, the same kind of ministry that, that, that Elijah had to his generation, this guy would have in his generation. And Jesus, talking to the disciples, says, you've been waiting for Elijah, I tell you, he came. You didn't notice it, but it was him. John the Baptist, who was a forerunner for Christ, the man who would pave the way in people's hearts and in society for Jesus' ministry to have the greatest effect. He was the, the road grader. He was the plow in the heart of Israel to make sure that the seeds which Jesus planted took root. And man, he did his ministry well. He talked to Herod, who happened to be the ruler of the Jews, told him he needed to repent much like Elijah told Ahab, he needed to repent. Herod had killed his brother, who happened to be king, so he could take his brother's wife. That's not good at all. I mean, that's, that's probably definition of bad in the dictionary. Horrible. But, but John the Baptist didn't just let it go. He said, wrong, you need to repent. He told the military to repent. He told the tax collectors to repent. He was dealing with government every place he thought possible. And he had no fear. Why? Because his role was to pave the way so that Christ's ministry could have the smoothest pathway to success. He was amazing. Jesus thought he was so great that he said this, no one who has been born of women is greater than John the Baptist. That's some serious company, y'all. That's Moses, that's Joshua, that's David, that's Samuel. Serious company. Deborah, nobody who has been born of women greater than him. Wow. And I think it's not just because he, he had a similar ministry to Elijah's, but I think it's because of what he did to get rid of his ministry. He probably had begun ministry a year to six months before Christ. They were about six months apart in age. So he's a little bit older, and he started his ministry quicker. 
Jesus started when he was about 30. We think John started when he was about 30. But John had a huge impact. I mean, John, John was so great. I'm not talking about a little ministry. John was so great that they looked at him and said, are you the Messiah? Now, you might think, I'm, obviously you think that what I have to say is worthy of your time to come. But never has anybody confused me with the Messiah. Good reason, very good reason. But they did with John. Wow. This man could preach so well that people would walk three and four miles to come out in the wilderness to the River Jordan just to be baptized. Walk to hear him preach. I have a hard time getting people to come into air conditioning. <laughs> he was amazing out in the wilderness. Stunning. The greatest minister since Malachi. And we're talking almost 450 years. The greatest ministry. Hundreds and thousands of people following him. And when Jesus shows up to be baptized, John says, first he said to the question of whether I'm the Messiah, he said, no, 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 no. There's one who's coming that's mightier than I, of whom I am not worthy to untie his sandals. Now, we don't understand what that means, but in the household that had servants, the lowest servant in the household was responsible to clean the feet of the people who came in the house, both house members and guests. Why? Because there were no paved roads, and everybody had open-toed shoes. And so your feet were filthy. They reclined at table. They didn't sit like we do. So they actually had chaise lounges that were about 45-degree angles. And then they would lie down on them with their feet in the back and they'd eat at a common, common table with, a common, just with their hands. And so you wanted to make sure your feet were set. The lowest servant would then have to wash the people's feet who came in the house because you didn't want the feet to mess up anything else. And the lowest servant, in order to do so, would first have to untie the people's sandals. John said, that man is so, you think I'm something. That man is so great that I am not even worthy to be the lowest servant in his house. So much so that when Jesus showed up to get baptized at the River Jordan, by John, John said, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. This is, this is flipped. You do me, please. Jesus said, no, no, uh-uh. We have to fulfill all righteousness here. I can't just print cards that say Messiah. I need a prophet to proclaim who I am. And this is your ministry. This is your anointing. I come under your ministry in order to do what I need to do. If anybody would be self-qualified, it would be Jesus. Yet he decided to submit himself to a man who was less qualified. And you have a problem submitting to people in your world? Are you kidding me? John the Baptist baptized him. Jesus got up. Dove came out of heaven. God spoke, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Jesus got out of the water, started walking away, and there were two main disciples of John, Philip and Andrew, who were following John, main staff members of John. John said, go. He gave his staff to Jesus. He gave all his people to Jesus. How many people to build a 20,000-member church at the pinnacle of their success and with the, 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 them functioning on all cylinders in ministry? 
even think about giving it to somebody else. I mean, if somebody else is anointed, they say, start over there. You can start a church over there. But they're not thinking about giving their whole ministry to them. That's what John did. This is why Jesus said, can't find anybody in Scripture who's done that. Anybody in Scripture who was a monarch, reigned two years and decided, nope, I'm going to give it to somebody else. They either had to die or had to die. John was amazing. But right as John was coming, that should be, now, that should be the prompt. Because Jesus said, excuse me, Malachi said, I'm sending before, Elijah, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Before. So Jesus said, John was Elijah. Oh, something's around the corner. If you piece together the puzzle of the Bible, something's around the corner. The good thing about prophetic utterance is it's that it's supposed to help you before. Prophets really aren't that functionally on top of it if they tell you afterwards, oh, I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> Man, the hindsight's always 20-20. They got to do before. Now, we have some marvelous prophets in our midst. Pastor Jim Critcher, prophet. Pastor Janelle Perkins, prophet. Some others who are prophetic in their orientation, just amazing. We are blessed with some real prophets that hear from God about what we should do, what we should not do, how we should be, and encourage us in our mission. They are amazing. I don't know where I would be without them, but I am not one of them, but I can be prophetic, and I'm begging you, please, if you're coming to church, listen to me as if this is the before moment for you. I realize my humanity gets in the way. I am well acquainted with my own weaknesses and how flawed I am and how I don't speak well sometimes and how I have tendencies to do wrong. I am well acquainted with the atom on the inside of me. And I know what I'm not and what I need to be for you and I'm pressing to try to be that on a regular basis. But I beg you, get beyond my humanity and listen to what God is saying through this fallible voice so that you can have information about your before because great and terrible is on the way. It's on the way. Now, I don't know if it's on the way society, in society for us. I don't know. For John the Baptist, 40 years after his ministry, Jerusalem was destroyed. And that for the final time as people understood it to be. Temple was destroyed. Walls were torn down. And for almost two millennia, there was no place for the people of Israel to be. Folks died. Jesus even talked about it. Kind of the abomination of desolation that you read in Scripture. He said, make sure that your flight is not in winter. If you're pregnant, you're in trouble when this happens. Rome came and destroyed Jerusalem. If that wasn't the great and terrible day of the Lord, it was at least one of them. Great and terrible. Many Jewish people died. It was horrible. And the Romans had no mercy for anybody they saw. Horrible. But God told them beforehand, when you see Elijah, that's your before. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in our society. I do know this, that there's nothing about our society is that, that, that seems to be growing increasingly favorable toward the church. Nobody's trying to knock down our door and say we can't preach the gospel. They're not trying to light our building on fire because we're Christians and they're not. 
That doesn't happen very much in America. But remember, America is a very short sliver of history in Christendom. Right now, there are people all around the world that are suffering for their faith. You might think it's a small pocket, but in most of the world, people are suffering for their faith. Most of the Christians on the planet are suffering for their faith. In China, suffering for their faith. In the Middle East, suffering for their faith. In Africa, where Islamic strongholds are, suffering for their faith. The world has never been kind to Christians. And if it continues to go the way it's going in America, I don't know if in my generation, but probably my kids, somebody's really not going to like us and probably express that in ways that are very unfavorable. So what do we do? Well, practice good citizenry. Push your button for the best electable person. You don't just give up because you can't find a good one. You have to be a responsible citizen. And so if you don't like any of the candidates, write yourself in. (laughs) Write somebody in. Just do something right. Be an excellent citizen in every respect. Act like your responsibility is to uphold the principles necessary for peace and justice in our land. Don't just check out. But as you do all the things that are responsible, please understand this. Put no faith in your efforts. Because if Congress changes, it doesn't mean it's going to change toward the gospel. I don't believe my vote is going to make Jesus come any quicker. The only way our nation is going to change is if revival happens in the church, whereby the church becomes what it should be again, and awakening happens out there, where people's eyes open and say, I need to repent. That is our only hope. Everything else, band-aids at best. Yet, we need to put the band-aids on the boo-boos. My point is, great and terrible sociologically might happen to us someday, but probably not tomorrow. But I can guarantee you this, that you're right around the corner from your next great and terrible. Now, I'm an optimist. I believe that God is going to open doors for me by way of favor on a regular basis. So when I step into things, I believe he's meeting me and has already paved the environment made the on-ramp for me to be successful. I believe that every day. I believe that that which I can't find in the front, he's going to follow up with blessings for me. I believe he's chasing me down with blessings on a regular basis. I believe all that, but I am not, I am not disassociated from the reality that I live in a world that's going the wrong way. And the more I try to do right, the more devil puts a target on my life and does what he can to derail me on the regular. And so I realize I live in an environment where great and terrible is really possible. Really possible. Bad days will happen. Anybody live long enough to see one? Help me. They happen. So what do you do? This is why you come to church. Because you need them before. You need somebody who can help you understand, what do I do when my great and terrible shows up? How do I respond? What kind of character should I have? How can I make great decisions in the environment of contrast? How can I do it? That's why coming here, studying your Bible regularly, hearing from God, even though I'm not a prophet, I am prophetic, hearing from God, even in spite of somebody's humanity, so that you can have your before moment and know how to respond when great and terrible shows up. Now, the interesting thing about this is that 
this national prophet, <laughs> you would think that a national prophet, after he's dealt with all these issues in the priesthood, would have a political solution. This great and terrible is coming, so we need to make sure that we pray for our president. Do that, but that's not the solution. We need to make sure we pray for our judiciary. Do that, but that's not the solution. He says, when he comes, he's gonna, his effect is going to be that he restores the hearts of fathers to children and the hearts of children to their fathers. That's your solution to fix stuff? What about the economic concerns? The stock market just fell. What about the military concerns? We, we have threats at our borders. What? Your solution are fixing dads? <laughs> Please understand that if you look at this as an inappropriate answer to a particular problem, you don't understand at all how important dads are. Dads are huge. Again, moms, you were four weeks ago. <laughs> dads are huge. Because it's the first place where people are supposed to experience what heaven is like. Every home is to be an outpost of glory. And dads are the ones who are to set the tone for that in leadership. That not without the assistance of their wives, but they are to be the leaders. Spiritual, stalwarts in the home, the harbingers of truth, the example of what the father is supposed to be in heaven on earth. That's where it starts. Great churches have great homes. Families that know what it's like to live in righteousness regularly. Not legalism. Righteousness. He said his prophet would come and restore the hearts of fathers to children. Now, your version of the Bible might say hearts of fathers to their children. But the personal pronoun is not there. There is no there there. Now, I'm not mad at anybody who puts it in there to try to make it read a little bit more fluently. I'm not mad about that. Everybody tries. Listen to me. Now you're thinking, well, what Bible should I read? It's most accurate. I do not care. Just read one. Read any one you want. Now, if you want to know everything that is detailed with, with specificity about the context in which somebody is writing, to whom they're writing, the grammar, breaking apart, what part that, that word has in the sentence, the object, the subject, the verb, the participles, you want to do all that? It takes some serious study. And then you find out, oh, that's what the writer really meant. And Greek and Hebrew and all of that study, they don't give you a different picture. They just give you high def. It's the same story. You just now got it with greater definition. There is no there there. So it reads like this. When my prophet comes, he's going to restore the hearts of fathers to children. Dad, you need to be great in your home, and I'm grateful for all of your loving care. We have some of the best dads in the world in this church. I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking in hyperbole there. Best dads in the world in this church. It's true. <laughs> Having said that, if you, want to, if you want to be a part of the solution to fix our world, you're going to have to love more people than just who have your last name. There are a lot of kids out there without you. They don't have anybody to look to. They don't know how to respond to people in conflict. 
they don't know how to be respectful to their mother. They don't know how to choose their peer friends. They don't know how to sift through life, throwing out the bad, keeping the good. They don't know because they don't have dad. And we need to broaden our shoulders, increase the capacity of our heart so that we can be dads to children beyond those who have our last name. I'm begging you. You want to stop the curse? Because that's the point. That's where it gets to here. Lest I come and smite the land with a curse. You want to stop it? You want to put brakes on it? Do this. Secondly, he says, the hearts of children to their fathers. The personal pronoun is there in the Hebrew. The hearts of children to their fathers. Why? Well, dads can always enlarge their heart to encompass more than just their own. But children aren't looking for a second dad. They're just looking for the one they got. That's all they want. They want the one they got to be right. And so they're saying, please, help me come to my games. Tell me I'm great. Even though I don't take out the trash, affirm me. Tell me I'm doing good. Children try to get back to their parents. And sometimes, hear me, age, age has nothing, it shouldn't, but age really has nothing to do with maturity. Sometimes, you 17-year-old, you need to be the mature one, even when your parents aren't. You want to see the curse stopped in your family? Let your heart be restored to your parents. You who are 35 and have 60-year-old parents, you still got issues. Daddy wasn't this, he wasn't there, he didn't do. I'm begging you, let the Holy Ghost begin to heal your heart so that you can be what you need to be for them to come back. Because when you become the most mature in the relationship, the curse stops. You know what a curse is? It's that which perpetuates as a result of disobedience from one generation to another. You wonder how your parents got to be the way they were. <laughs> Honestly, that's how. My dad was an amazing human being. He really was. He was going to play for the Philadelphia Phillies as a baseball player. He was that good at shortstop. They were looking at him in 1947, just as everybody wanted to figure out how to break black people into the MLB. Jackie Robinson had just been signed. He was also a, a recording artist. He had two number one hits in 58 and 59. He was a dentist. He lived so many lives in one, it's just stunning. Just, I just think, you did all that before 30? Before 30? Wow. Amazing. And he cared for me the best way he knew how. But there were a lot of things I didn't get. Not that I didn't understand, but I did not receive. And I didn't understand my dad until I went to be with his dad. Now, his father, my grandfather, was dying of cancer in 1984. My grandmother called and said, the doctors are giving your dad, your, your grandfather, two weeks. I flew down. And I was there at my, my grandfather's bedside for a week. And I was using this as an opportunity to connect with him and to get as much information as possible because he was the patriarch. And I needed to know who I was by knowing who my dad was. And so I was picking his brain. And he talked about his life. He talked about the first time he gave his heart to Jesus. I mean, it was just rich, rich. 
but he talked about his son. And um, he had some regrets. He never told my dad that he loved him, ever. Now, he wasn't alone in that. Most dads from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s didn't do that. They were John Wayne dads. Just, if, you, if, if the son would say, I love you, dad would say, same. <laughs> you just didn't express emotion like that. You weren't vulnerable. You weren't transparent. So it wasn't unusual. But as he began to describe the relationship he had with my dad growing up, light bulbs came up and, and just blew up in my brain, just came on. Because my dad hated my ministry. Didn't just dislike it, hated it. I was supposed to be a dentist. I was accepted to Meharry Medical School, his alma mater down in Nashville, Tennessee. Supposed to be enrolled by August of 82. And God called me to go into the ministry. Devastated my dad. I was supposed to take his practice in Kansas City when I graduated in the spring of 1985. And I would take his practice, no overhead, have all of his patients, and pay off his retirement. It's a great deal. But I decided to do something else. Not happy. He loved me, but he didn't know how to show how he loved me in the midst of his disapproval. So I went to the ministry. I came home for Christmas in 1983. My brother had the distinction of going to TCU to play football. Came back with really poor grades uh, the first semester. This plays into what I'm about to say. So my dad was mad at me for going into the ministry. Now he's doubly mad because my brother came home with bad grades. I said, help a brother out. <laughs> Took us out to lunch. My brother was sitting beside my dad. I was across the table. He spoke to my son, my brother, and looked at me and said, don't you ever come back like him. He is nothing. He will amount to nothing. My brother just went, what happened with you and dad? I don't know. Mad. Mad. Didn't talk to me for four and a half years. Except about the Kansas City Chiefs and the Kansas City Royals. We're from Kansas City. Never called me on my birthday. I called him on my birthday. I didn't say you missed my birthday when I called. I just said, hey, love you. You know, happy birthday, boy. After I came back from my time with my grandfather, I realized I get it. I get why I never heard an affirming word from my dad ever. When I scored a touchdown in football, no great job. When I fumbled, what's wrong with you? He never told me I was great. He never told me I was going to be something, only negative. Now, from his generation, he was thinking, well, you gotta, you got to tell a child the truth so he can fix what's wrong and get right. I get it. But listen to me. My kids hear about every day, twice a day, how great they are. I don't deprive them of the privilege of hearing my correction. <laughs> they get that. But that's all in the context of, I got the greatest kids on the planet. I love y'all so much. You make me so proud all the time. So much so that it might just roll off their ears like water off a duck's back. It's common. I never got it. And I realized why I never got it. Because you cannot give what you don't have. 
My grandfather never gave it to my dad, so he didn't have it to give to me. I came back renewed. I said, I got it. I can't blame my dad. All the stuff he took us through when we were younger and messing up my house, I can't blame. He only did what he could. Oh, God, thank you. Heal me. But help me to be what I need to be to my dad. Don't let bitterness and anger and resentment fill my soul anymore. I'm done with that. He should have been better, yes, but that's done. Jesus, you can heal me from all that pain, and you can make me the kind of person that can make him be what he needs to be for you and for me. Children to their fathers. In 1984, after my grandfather passed, I made an album. And my dad was a recording artist, as I said, so I got a little bit of what he had, just a little bit of singing ability. And so I made an album, and I, it was all in dedication to him. I wrote the songs. And he came home one Christmas. My mother and father were divorced, but he would come by at Christmas. I had the song cued in a cassette player. That's what Adam used, by the way, in the garden. <laughs> had it cued, and I, I popped it in when he walked in the door. He said, who's that? I said, that's me, Dad. And the song was all about him and how grateful I was for all he did for me. Never talking about the negative, only what he had done. Honoring him. He didn't mention a word about the words in the song. He just said, hmm, boy, you can sing. That's all I needed. That's all I needed. The pathway had begun for healing. A couple of years later, he winds up homeless in Kansas City for a number of reasons. We didn't know it. We find out through some friends. I have him move in with my wife and I. My my bride, Cynthia, was so kind because my dad only knew to tell people what to do and he didn't mind telling my wife what to do on the regular. So it was, it was interesting having the, authority, the patriarch of the family in your own house. I, I was never called bread. It was always boy. I wasn't mad about it, but that, that's just true. Um, he had cancer, emphysema. And I had the privilege of caring for him as he cared for me when I was a child. Hardest time of my life. Greatest time of my life. But while he was with me, he had the opportunity to spend time in the ministry that he hated. Somehow or another, over a year and a half being with me, I led him to Jesus. He got baptized in the tub of my house. I wasn't the senior pastor, but when the senior pastor left and said, would you please take the church, my daddy sat on the front row every Sunday. He still didn't know how to praise me, but he would just sit there like this. <laughs> just a little smile on his face. And I was preaching real bad. <laughs> These were not good sermons. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never pastored before, but I was his boy. We were watching a football game one day, and I'd go, I'd, uh, we'd sit there, you know, He'd critique. He loved football. And um, he'd talk to me about the game, what the players were doing. And in the middle of the game, he just said one day, well, I guess everything worked out okay, huh? I looked at him. I thought, you mean because they scored? <laughs> I mean, he was out of the blue. And he was looking me straight in my eye. I said, uh, yeah, Dad. 
Yes, it did. That meant I love you. Thank you for caring for me. I, I'm sorry for everything I've done. You're amazing. That's all I heard. He couldn't say anything else because he didn't have it. He, he didn't have it to give. But because I was healed, I could help him. I had my heart turned to my father. And as a result, my kids don't have to suffer the pain of my life growing up now in their lives. It doesn't transfer. The curse has stopped. I don't know where you are. Even if your father has passed, you can make this right. You can talk to daddy. You can ask for forgiveness for holding the wrong stuff against your parents. Realizing that hypocrisy runs deep in humanity. And someday your kids will be saying the same stuff about you if you don't change. And you have an opportunity to say, God, forgive me. You know what's interesting as I close? That God, out of all the things the Lord could have thought were really good to tell humanity. He chose 10. We call them the commandments. And number five was this, honor your mother and father that your days may be long on the earth. Now, if I were to choose 10 things most important for humanity to know, I don't know that that would be one of them. I don't know. I think, well, here's the way you do detente when you want to go to war. When, when you can't bring real peace, this is how you do it. I'd give some kind of military, military wisdom and, and diplomatic wisdom. I'd figure out ways to fix really big problems. But God thought, I am. I'm fixing really big problems by starting in the house. And if I can get people to do this, honor, number five, honor your mother and father. That your days may be long in the earth. If I can get people to do this, even when their parents have made a bunch of mistakes, and, and, and hear me, I'm at the forefront. Now, there's nothing I wish I had done. Zero. Nothing I wish I had done. We didn't go camping? Good. <laughs> Good. I hated it. I did it once with some fellas. I hated every moment of it. Why do people do this? We have houses. What's the point? I have no regrets about not taking my children camping. None. <laughs> but I got a lot of regrets about what I did do. A lot. It's never abusive to my children. But I wasn't smart enough to raise them all right. When you have your first one, he's the experiment. He's a guinea pig. You don't know what you're doing. And so you, you do your best, but you're not what you are to the seventh. Yes. My baby boy, Grant, really got a much better version of dad. Yes. And you sit there and say, God, 
Now, the, the trade-off is your first one gets all your strength and time. And so he got the most of your good and all your bad, too. <laughs> the latter ones don't get near as much of your time, but they also don't get all of your mistakes. And there are a lot of things I wish I hadn't done. I wish I'd been more sensitive. I wish I'd heard more. I wish I'd been less reactive. I wish all those things. But in the process, I said, God, I realize it's me. It's not them. These kids, if they had a better dad, they'd be better kids. They'd be better kids. And so I didn't blame them for their disobedience. I blamed me. And although I hold them accountable for doing right, I realize they came by it honestly. It's me. God, make me better. I can't stop them from making the mistakes that they will, but I can be a whole lot like you are to me to them. When I make mistakes, mistakes, you don't seem to respond to me like I respond to them. You are so merciful and you are so kind. Help me to be more like that to them. The curse stops when fathers reach children and children reach out to their fathers. Something happens and the blessing flows and it's not just about the blessing that comes to your father as a result of you now reaching out and saying thank you even in the midst of all their mistakes. It's not that you ignore them. You just concentrate on what's most important. And when you do it, please don't do this. I want you to know, Dad, I forgive you for everything you did wrong. (sighs) That's a backhanded accusation. And and they don't know what to do with it. It's one of those, thank you? Thank you? I don't feel very good right now. Don't do that. You take up your forgiveness issues with God. And if you have issues about what you need to discuss with your parents, you say, Mom, Dad, can we sit down and talk? I don't know about this. Help me with this so I can process well. And then after you've had dialogue, then you know for what you need to forgive. But don't do the other. But in the process, not only does it help them, but it helps you. The blessing is this. You have it go well in your life. Honor your mother and father that it might go well with you. And if it's not going as well as it should, and my life is going phenomenally well, Every cupboard I open is full. That doesn't mean I don't have difficulty. I'm just putting it in perspective. Wow, am I blessed. I got the greatest church on the planet. I got the greatest friends on the planet. I have the greatest wife on the planet. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. My wife will send you a thank you in the mail too. I have the greatest kids. I got the greatest. Every I am so blessed. There's nobody more blessed than me in the entire world. That does not have anything to do with money because I need more of that. (laughs) But it has everything to do with how God has treated me. How he has treated me. And that all goes back to what I did for my dad. Now, that's not a catch-all. That doesn't mean you can disobey in every other area as long as you do the honor thing. (laughs) Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. I bless you. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Inspire us to be what we should be for the most.